0: Press the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get daily updates from the front. From the Journalists of the Australian, here's what's on the front. I'm Claire Harvey. It's Monday, August 22. Anthony Albanese is under pressure to grant entry to tens of thousands of foreign workers waiting to get to Australia and create a new class of low skilled visas. Australia's in the midst of a skills crisis, with new modelling showing there are half a million fewer skilled foreign workers than before the pandemic. And in unskilled jobs, the gaps are even bigger. A warning that elderly Australians are being ripped off in their own homes by care providers, charging huge management fees and failing to be transparent about their pricing. A health department report obtained by The Australian also says some agencies are rording the system by claiming items on behalf of clients, such as flights, holidays, and renovations. Authors are rallying to support wounded novelist Salman Rushdie, who's recovering in hospital from a knife attack that saw him lose an eye. The incident has sparked a new debate about routine harassment and threats many riders are facing, online and in the real world. That story's first up, and later in the episode, we'll find out why some wineries are turning tourists away from their cellar doors. Over a literary career spanning five decades, British author Salman Rushdie has been subject to political firestorms and death threats. It was his most famous novel, The Satanic Verses, that also became his most controversial. But on Friday the 12th of August, the worst of his nightmares became a reality. The novelist, the author Salman Rushdie, who has been stabbed at an event in New York State. Rushdie is currently in hospital, receiving treatment for severe stab wounds and is likely to be left with life-altering injuries. The attacker is in police custody, but the violence has shocked the world and sparked an uncomfortable debate about the future of free speech. Jacqueline Magnet is our Europe correspondent and she's been following the story closely. Jack, let's go back to the start. Why has Salman Rushdie spent most of his life on the run? Well, Salman Rushdie was quite
1: celebrated author at the time when he was commissioned by his publishers to write a book. We're talking about a $500,000 advance back in 1988. He'd written a story called Midnight's Children, which was a Booker Prize finalist. He went to school in England in rugby and then he went to King's College in Cambridge. So he was a contemporary there of Clive James and Jermaine Greer. Uh, He was very well known in the literary circles Then he wrote and published The Satanic Verses in late 1988. And in Iran, were very offended by this. And the Ayatollah Khomeini, he then issued a fatwa, which is essentially a death sentence, urging followers of Islam to murder Salman Rushdie. To malign the sanctifying rituals of Islam is ta'an fiddeen. And Ta'an Fiddeen is blasphemy, and blasphemy is a capital crime in Islam, punishable by death. So Salman Rushdie then had to go into hiding. He was living in England at the time and was protected by the British police for many years. He's then since moved over to the United States, where he, after a period of time, I think he felt quite comfortable with his life, even though he had this death sentence hanging over his
0: head. The police have made it very clear we don't know the motive of his attacker, Hadi Matar. but what do we know about him?
1: The attacker is American, but he's of uh, Lebanese descent. His father is Lebanese, lives in southern Lebanon, and his mother has since denounced him, says that she doesn't want to see him ever again, and believes that he was brainwashed when he went to southern Lebanon to visit his father. We've also got the attacker who's spoken to the New York Post who said he has only read a few pages of the Satanic Verses.
0: When he was attacked, Rushdie was giving a speech about the importance of protecting writers in peril. What do you think this attack says about the status of free speech right now?
1: Well, Salman Rushdie himself has said that he's felt that over the decades of his uh, quite bizarre life now that the mood has changed.
0: To be famous for the wrong thing is a terrible fate. You know, and I've now spent a dozen years of my life trying to climb out from under that. You know, I'd be quite happy to be less famous for the right thing.
1: He's kind of won the battle in that Satanic Versus continues to be published and people continue to read it. But has he won the war? And he feels that perhaps he hasn't because now society believes that if a collective feels upset, it has the right to silence the individual. And that's been quite a shift in, in society's expectations over the decades. Whereas when he published this work, that was certainly not the case.
0: The argument that some of Rushdie's Islamic critics would make is that free speech doesn't mean the right to offend. This question of whether free speech is an absolute is something we've seen a lot of in Australia, for example, when people who deny the Holocaust uh, seek permission to enter the country to make speeches. So where is this taking that debate, do you think, Jack? Well, it's
1: interesting that we're debating this now. And that's such a wonderful thing that even though this horrible, dreadful attack on Salman Rushdie's life. But it's reignited this debate about what is acceptable, what is appropriate, and what does freedom mean? We have laws that stop, prevent speech on the basis of hatred or racial profiling or on the basis of even gender. I looked back around 1989 and 1990, the coverage of Salman Rushdie's attack or the fatwa when it was issued at the time and the response. And interestingly enough, very prominent writers at the time were very split on the issue of this freedom of being able to write what you like. And Jermaine Greer, for instance, just called Salman Rushdie a megalomaniac. You know, in a way, an author's being blamed for having the perhaps the courage to come out and write something very provocative. So even back then, there was that debate happening, and this has now reignited the same issues, but perhaps in a different Sphere. We're now thirty years on, and society has a lot more expectations about what's appropriate and what's not, and what
0: is acceptable now. Jacqueline Magne is the Australian's Europe correspondent. Coming up, Australian hospitality is growing up, and the wine regions are having to get creative.
2: My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts, and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Australia. Whoever came up with this place deserves a real pat on the back. I mean, think about it. I heard about places where you can fly, kayak, or wade to lunch and get served a delicious beverage by a guy called Jeff.
0: Hospitality is coming back to life as the nightmares of empty restaurants and Zoom drinks begin to fade away. The wine regions have stepped up their games and some wineries have begun to focus beyond the wine and are finding creative ways to provide tourists with a full sensory experience. I'm joined now by the editor of The Weekend Australian magazine, Christine Midapp, who's a formidable journalist in her own right and also an experienced traveller. Christine, you spent some time at a winery in the Hunter Valley, Mount Pleasant. Tell us about what the old-fashioned experience of wine, what were you expecting when you got there? Well, the old-fashioned
2: experience of wine tasting in Australia was you'd drive along a little road, you'd see a shingle hanging out the front, you'd go in, there'd be an old guy with some wine barrels and some cheap glasses or some little plastic cups... And you would try the wine for free. You might buy a bottle. A lot of people didn't. And then you'd go on your merry way and go to the next place. So that was, I think, what we're very used to in Australia. But the pandemic uh, changed all of that. And there is now a new model. And there seems to be no going back to the good old days. So what's the experience like now? Well, so now it's um, not so much a cellar door visit anymore, it's a cellar door experience. So it's very much a sort of a sensory, full-on immersion into not just the wine, but the experience of the vineyard. So now in most places, not everywhere, but in most places you have to pre-book. You can't just rock up unannounced. You have to pre-pay online. And there are set numbers of people at any one time and there are specific flights of wine that you will taste. So you can't just go in and necessarily say, I just want to try your Shiraz. So it's a bit inflexible in some ways, but from the winery's point of view, it makes sense because they can control numbers, they can plan who's going to be there, and their sales are actually
0: going up, not down. So does it come from the bottom line? Is it about trying to make sure that this is actually a profitable exercise for them? Well, I think it's right. If you think back to how it was,
2: there would be bus loads and car loads going in drinking free wine and not even making a purchase, let alone signing up to a wine club. Don't forget that we came into COVID with all sorts of things hitting the industry. There was the China trade bans. There had been the drought. Then we'd had the bushfires, which sent smoke taint over so many vineyards in New South Wales and Victoria um, and South Australia. So there were a lot of headwinds hitting the industry. COVID came along and they had to completely rethink their model because suddenly they had to have people seated. They had to have bookings. So that forced them, I think, to rethink how they made their offering. And now they've stuck with that model. So what's interesting now is you go to somewhere like Mount Pleasant, which is a very storied vineyard in the Hunter Valley. It's a beautiful old label. It has one of the most revered founders in Morris Shade. And what they've done is they've turned their cellar door into this sort of massive like a country club without the stuffiness. (laughs) It's full of lounges and roaring fire. It's a very big space full of beautiful Tasmanian timbers. There's photographic artwork all over the walls, big Bill Henson's, Tracy Moffat's video installations on the TVs. But you have to book and you have to prepay. It's not redeemable by purchase, so you pay for the tasting and then you pay for your wine. But it's a beautiful experience. And so as someone who loves the serendipity of just wandering down a laneway and dropping into, (laughs) you know, some little shingle, uh, I must say I found this to be quite a lovely, rich um, experience.
0: Is this the Australian tourism sector growing up? It takes a fair bit of courage,
2: I think, to change the model in this way, but there are a lot of wineries doing it and they are pouring a huge amount of money into it. So we're now seeing cellar doors that are having $70 million go into the construction. There's an art museum at Tarawara Winery down in the Yarra Valley There's cooking schools attached to wineries now. So what they're trying to do is to say, well, yes, we're a winery, but we can actually offer you a complete experience where you don't just drop in, have a couple of drinks and drop out, that you actually come in and you understand what we're doing here. And by the way, you will get great food quite often and you'll get great art as well.
0: Christine Midapp is editor of The Weekend Australian magazine. There's a packed news agenda this week as the scandal over Scott Morrison's secret jobs gains steam. You can read all about that and find out about the rest of the nation's best news right now at theaustralian.com.au.